like what we do here at Clever, please consider supporting the show. To make a one-time donation, click the link in the episode description. Thank you. One for mom and one for me. Hey, beautiful. Ulta Beauty invites you to see the joy this holiday season with top gifts for everyone on your list, including you. Discover Black Friday beauty deals all week long from brands like Tarte, ColourPop, First Aid Beauty, and more. Shop in store, online, or try curbside pickup today. Alta Beauty. The possibilities are beautiful. Hello there. This message is coming to you from the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, a collection of fascinating conversations with leading historians, giving you the lowdown on history's biggest characters, hidden stories, and greatest adventures. Speaking of great adventures, this week, the History Extra podcast is brought to you by Booking.com. Whether you're looking for a culture-filled city break, a local getaway, or a far-flung adventure, you can save at least 30% with Booking.com's Black Friday deals. These deals are for a limited time only, so you'll need to book before 1st of December to make the most of them. But the good news is that you'll have the flexibility to travel any time in 2021. Head to booking.com forward slash Black Friday to book your next big adventure. Support for Clever comes from Master and Dynamic. We know you love great design and care about quality audio. So we know you will love Master and Dynamic's headphones and earphones. Brilliant sound and design motivates everything they do. So Master and Dynamic products are the perfect gift for the music and design obsessed alike. And after you see the craftsmanship and premium materials, we know you'll want to get a pair for yourself too. Whether you're looking for luxurious and comfortable over-ear headphones, portable and power-packed true wireless earphones, or an immersive wireless speaker, Master and Dynamic has what you need to upgrade your listening experience. Hear your favorite podcast, clever, obviously, and your favorite songs in a whole new way. Visit MasterDynamic.com and use the code CLEVER for 10% off your new pair of headphones. Terms and conditions apply. That's MasterDynamic.com. I'm bewildered by the amount of choices. Not the amount of choices, but the lack of basis. Simple basis to generate a form. Sixty-one-year-old Norman Jaffe is best known on the East End for designing exclusive homes. But his family says they are most proud of his religious works, including this just-completed East Hampton synagogue. Now his family pray police are wrong. Police believe Jaffe went for an early morning swim at this Bridgehampton beach last week and drowned. The keys to Jaffe's car were found in it, and his clothes were found on the beach. But no body has been found. That was the voice of quintessential Hampton-based mid-century modern architect Norman Jaffe. On the morning of August 19, 1993, he took a short drive to the beach in Bridgehampton, New York, stripped down, neatly folded his clothes, and dove into the Atlantic Ocean for a swim. He never returned, and his body was never recovered. The 61-year-old Jaffe's disappearance left many unanswered questions about his legacy, his influence, and what actually happened on that late summer morning, 27 years ago. Hey everyone, I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever Confidential, Episode 1, The Strange Disappearance of Norman Jaffe. I learned about this story from my friend Andrew Wagner, a journalist who, while researching for a book, became deeply fascinated with all the intrigue and mystery of Mr. Jaffe's life and disappearance. We both agreed this would make a great episode, and so we're embarking on this experiment to dig into the lesser-told stories of the darker side of design, the shadowy, sometimes sordid tales hiding under a glossy topcoat of respectable legacy. 
So if you like what you hear, let us know. We're considering turning Clever Confidential into its own series, and there are a lot more stories like this that we want to explore. But first, let me introduce you to my co-host today. Andrew Wagner is my friend, collaborator, and partner in crime. He was one of the original founding editors of Dwell Magazine, the editor-in-chief of American Craft and Ready-Made, and has just finished a book on our first subject, Norman Jaffe. So I'll let him introduce our main character. I was first introduced to Norman Jaffe and his work while I was at Dwell. He had this just very mystical quality about him that I was really drawn to. Now, Jaffe first came to prominence in the 60s, and his work is really quintessentially mid-century modern. Low-slung houses featuring lots of wood and stone that seemed to grow out of the earth rather than dominate it. And there was always something really very Californian to me about his work and Jaffe himself that I loved and that I really related to. You might even call him a proto-hippie, though he never sort of took on the personal stylings of classic 60s or 70s hippies with long hair, patchouli oil, drugs. But really his whole life was built around this sort of what I like to refer to as a favorite hippie pastime, which is self-discovery. Clearly, that mystique was an important part of his success, and it really drew clients to him, clients that really respected that part of him, the, the artistic side of him. They encouraged it, they wanted it, they needed it, and were willing to put up with all his idiosyncrasies that came with those talents. Jaffe really just had this outsider energy that drove him his whole life. And for me, that's one of the things that I loved. I loved that he was this guy steeped in West Coast mysticism and back to nature energy. But then he planted himself firmly in the East Coast establishment. He had all the hippie trappings, but to look at him, you'd never know it. From a personal stylistic perspective, at least in the beginning of his career, he was much more Don Draper than Jerry Garcia. He really was a contrarian, an incredibly charming and talented contrarian. So if you look at his life trajectory, I guess none of this should come as a surprise. He was always a bit of a gypsy, a vagabond, and a chameleon. So he was born in Chicago on April 3rd, uh, 1932, to Polish and Latvian parents. His father was Harold, and Harold came from Latvia, and his mother was Mary, and she came from Poland. Really, there were problems when he was growing up. His mother was bipolar, and his father was what Jaffe called a jack-of-all-trades, and worse than that, he called him a drifter. And, you know, this is a tough time to grow up, too. You know, the country's coming out of the uh, Great Depression. They're immigrants, um, which has got to be tough. They're struggling a little bit in Chicago. And in 1941, when Norman was nine, his family moves to Seattle to join relatives, where one of his father's brothers lived. So Norman really falls in love with Seattle when he gets there. The dramatic landscape and the rhythmic waves of the Pacific, it, it just really captured his soul. And so he, he really was in love with this place. Was he sort of cast off to Seattle? No, they all go together. But after the war, 1947, Jaffe's parents decide to move back to Chicago. But Norman convinces them to let him stay in Seattle and finish high school. And he actually lived in a rooming house, and he would walk to school every day at West Seattle High School. And it's around this time that he starts to consider architecture as a career. He has a great quote, which, again, I think really captures who this guy is and who he would become. But he says, I knew the architect was a kind of guy who didn't have to get up early which I thought was great. So, you know, we're getting a little bit of a look into, into what type of guy this is. He doesn't want to get up late. He doesn't want to have to go to the office every day necessarily. Um, he's looking for something different. But in 1950, he graduates high school, and he actually ends up moving back to Illinois to live with his parents, and he enrolls at the architecture program at the University of Illinois in Urbana. So in 1953, he enrolls in the army because the family's in financial turmoil. Jaffe doesn't have any money. Um, he wants to figure out how to study, but he doesn't have the funds. So he enrolls in the army, and he's shipped off to Korea. Almost immediately upon his arrival in Seoul, um, the Korean War ends, and he's moved to Japan by the Army Corps of Engineers. And in Japan, he is instructed to travel the country drawing and photographing everything. So just ah. obviously, yeah, the most perfect, awesome job, <laughs> not only for Jaffe, but for anyone. That just sounds amazing. 
In the spring of 1956, he's released from the military and he returns to the States and he ends up taking a drafting job in the Chicago office of Skidmore, Owings and Merrill. But, you know, I think there was something about him again, like that wasn't Chicago, even though he's from there, it influenced him greatly. I think he was always sort of yearning to, to get away. Maybe he just wasn't that much of a Midwest guy. So he's always trying to break away from there. And in fact, he ends up being able to do that because he enrolls in the College of Environmental Design at the University of California, Berkeley. And he ends up studying with William Worcester and Joseph Estrick. So Joseph Estrick at the time was the foremost proponent of Bay Area modernism. The Northern California modernism at the time is really about the place. It's about Northern California. And I think Jaffe is really turned on by that. He's really turned on by this idea of the place and the context having such an effect on the work. He then also landed a job at Eschrick's office where the very first beginnings of the Sea Ranch run were underway. Now, the Sea Ranch, if you don't know it, it's way up north um, in California. It was this big plot of land that Joseph Eschrick's office first decided to sort of build a really a planned community but it was a really amazing uh, modern planned community Jaffe gets to experience sort of what this is all about the sea ranch really took a lot of its influence from the farm buildings that were around there from the windswept trees of the northern coast and Jaffe is really excited by that and he would have um, been there for the the conceptual phase for all the right the, the thinking and and right figuring out what's important and why and the materiality of it all right exactly exactly but i think what's really funny about this time in, in joffy's life or what's really interesting and again this speaks to sort of his outsider nature is that maybe he's not really comfortable anywhere He is this soul that can't be contained because as great as the California experience is for him, the time, you know, the the hippie bubblings are starting to come up, you know, a lot of experimentation in every way. He's still not comfortable there. Or maybe Joffe never wants to get too comfortable anywhere. Even though there's probably a great future for him in California, he decides to get out of California. But he doesn't get out of California before he marries his first wife, Barbara Jean Cochran. And he actually marries her in 1957. And they have a son, Miles Jaffe, that was named after Norman's hero, Miles Davis, which is pretty interesting, um, Mm -hmm. in 1958. That's when Miles Jaffe is born. By 1960, the marriage is falling apart. They're pretty young. Jaffe is Jaffe. And they decide to separate. And so Barbara and Miles moved back to Chicago, the suburbs near her parents, and Norman accepts a job at Philip Johnson's office in New York City. And he packs his bags and he sets off to make his future. I think he also always wanted to push himself. So where do you do that? Where's a great place to push yourself? New York City. So he heads to New York City and he lands in Philip Johnson's office. It's interesting because Philip Johnson's office at the time It was very high modernism. It's perfect. Like everybody's desk is totally neat. You know, nothing's out of place. People, it's the early 60s, young architects. They're wearing suits and ties to the office, rolling up their white sleeves, etc. But Jaffe is a total eccentric. And he lands there and he was known in the office as being really a total slob, at least as far as that office went. So Joffe's desk is a mess and there's garbage everywhere and it's just a a crazy spot, but amongst all these like very uh, neat desks. But what's interesting is Johnson lets it happen. He's not a slob slob. Like he's not slovenly. He's kind of an elegant man though, but he's sort of like an artist slob, right? He's just got papers and ideas and all the... Yes. Yes. Okay. The accoutrement of a scattered brain is everywhere. That, that's exactly right, because he is. He's, he's kind of very debonair. He's dashing, and, he, and he's very good looking. You know, this is something that really helped him, obviously, in life. He, he has these really amazing good looks, and Phil Johnson, I think, was very taken with him, as everybody is. As Joffe goes through his life, people are drawn to him. He has a lot to say. 
and obviously he has a lot of great ideas, a lot of creative ideas that he wants to share with people. And so Philip so, yeah. Johnson is sort of more tolerant of his eccentricities than he is of... Of others, of other people working in his office. Or, yeah, Philip Johnson lets him get away with stuff that he doesn't let others get away with. Oh, that's so, going to create uh, some inter-office rivalries. Uh, right. Because Joffe, even though people are drawn to him, he's, he's also making enemies along the way. His first wife, she ends up dying in a terrible car crash. Oh, dear. So, yeah, it, back in Chicago. So that leaves his first son, Miles, doesn't have a parent in Chicago. But Joffe decides, he says, well, I, Miles has to come and live with me. Please, let's get him in New York. So Miles goes to New York and he starts living with his dad. I think Miles is around 11 or 12. And oh, so... Tragic. It's around the same time that Norman decides he's going to set off on his own and he wants to work to establish his own practice. But times are really tough. And it's uh, it's interesting because when he does this, if Miles shows up and they actually end up sharing a pullout sofa to sleep on and then they'd fold it back up in the in the day so Norman could get to work. So it's it's kind of a crazy existence. You know, it's not the most stable existence. But, you know, Norman is driven and Norman's determined and he wants to make this work. And, of course, his charms and his good looks and his talent finally really start to pay off. So in 1967, at the age of 35, Norman gets really some much needed publicity. And he lands this two page spread in Men's Bazaar. And it's really it's the perfect like if you wanted to sum up Norman Jaffe, this spread would do it. It would be the perfect way to say, this is who he is. But he's lounging really seductively in front of this model for a house he's designed in Virginia. And his head is resting coyly on his propped up left hand while his right hand rests playfully on his crotch. And he's wearing this Bill Blast suit and he has a turtleneck sweater on and an ultra wide canvas belt. And in the time of bell bombs and beards, Norman is, he's just fully cutting against the grain. So the caption reads, architect Norman Jaffe, AIA, is a talented young man with an image as concrete, direct, and pleasing as the buildings he designs. So, Whoa, that's this, an architectural centerfold. <laughs> yes, exactly. It is an architectural centerfold if ever there was one. <laughs> It's at this time that Norman, again, being the restless soul that he is and always looking, he decides he's going to head out to the Hamptons and he sees opportunity there. He sees that there are projects for him there because at this point in the late 60s, the Hamptons is not the Hamptons that we know today that you know people talk about all the time that is really overblown there's mcmansions everywhere it's kind of a ridiculous scene nowadays but it's still beautiful but that back then it's really really beautiful it's really the hamptons of lee krasner and jackson pollock it's really this artistic hotbed about two and a half three hours from new york city norman is just floored by it he goes out there and what he sees is really just a collection of potato farms that are running right into the Atlantic Ocean. So it's extremely bucolic, and it's got these great lush beaches and this artistic lineage. This was where Norman needed to be. At the same time, there's money starting to flood in here. Also sounds like whatever appealed to him about Seattle and Northern California and the Sea Ranch landscape is probably appealing to him here. And Exactly. And I think what it also offers is, you know, this opportunity for him to carve out his own image, his own way of doing things. He's not constrained by the city He's not constrained by offices. I see why it's perfect for him. One of Norman's glaring contradictions, right, is that he is this eccentric, this artist, but at the same time, he's attracted to the finer things in life. And architecture is not a cheap endeavor, right? You know, Mm -hmm. if you're going to make great architecture, it's going to cost some money. And so Norman understands that and he's attracted to it as well. So even though he likes to paint himself as this eccentric artist who doesn't really care about that stuff. 
he definitely cares about it. In the early days, he's really working for, the, as you said, his people. He really enjoys being around his clients and he, he's really having fun and he's got a lot of leeway to do things that he wants to do. But of course, as the seventies go on, they start to bleed into the eighties and what has happened on the East Coast in the 80s is we're starting to look at the growth of Wall Street. And so the people who are making their way out to the Hamptons at this point are not really Norman's people. And it's, They're Gordon geckos, you know, aren't they? And there's a lot of Gordon geckos coming out there, and they have a lot of money. And they still want what Norman offers, but they're also not willing to play Norman's game as much. But the commissions that were pouring in, while they were great for business, they were really not great for an artistic soul like Joffe. And so he really yearned for these projects beyond single-family houses for the titans of finance and fashion in Hollywood. He, he was searching for something that would uh, that would satisfy his soul and not just his pocketbook. As he's disillusioned, he's sort of maybe becoming a bit rootless. And while he had successfully carved out his own path in modernism and on the East Coast, he still always felt shunned and sort of left out of the critical acclaim that a lot of East Coast architects were getting. Peter Eisenman, Michael Graves, Charles Guathamy, John Hedgick, and Richard Meyer. They called them the New York Five. And these guys were kind of the big academic architecture stars, and people loved them. And Norman was kind of considered this, oh, yeah, he he knows how to woo fancy clients, and he builds schlock for people with a lot of money. So, uh, oh, that's gotta yeah. hurt his, his artist's integrity. Norman really considered himself a serious architect and he was, you know, but I think he was also sort of feeling the effects of he had spent too much time in the Hamptons. He was associated too much with that and especially too much with sort of 1980s Hamptons. So he's starting to get yeah, restless and he ends up really getting into studying transcendental meditation. And he actually travels to northern India, and he gets really into meditation, and he's really excited about it. He feels like it's sort of feeding his soul, I guess. So when he comes back home after his visit to northern India, where he's studying in an ashram, he's really a changed person. And he, he has this new energy and this new idea, new, new ideas that he wants to approach. Now, he was also at this time he had been sued by Alan Alda of MASH, if you remember him. Hawkeye for, sued him? <laughs> yeah, Hawkeye sued Norman Joffe because he had done a house for him and Alan Alda didn't think that he had lived up to his part of the contract, etc. And so he, he was getting into all sorts of trouble. Now, Joffe is from a Jewish heritage, but he had never really been a practicing Jew. But with his newfound enlightenment, he now wants to really pursue that part of himself. And so he hears that there's a synagogue being built in East Hampton, and he just goes crazy. And he just pursues getting that project as much as he can. And he finally gets it, but he agrees to waive his feet. He really wants to work on a spiritual space. Right, exactly, exactly. And he's willing to do anything he can. And what's amazing about that is it's really one of his greatest, most inspired works. And it really is an incredibly moving project. It pays off for him to follow his heart, you know, and I guess it always has. This is a career pinnacle for him because it's aligned and, with his spiritual purpose as well as his professional purpose. And he's riding that wave. And I think, you know, as he gets more confident and he comes into this new part of himself, Again, people are attracted to him and his confidence and his ideas and his talent. He actually ends up landing his biggest commission that he's ever landed. It's 325,000 square foot high rise at 565 Fifth Avenue in New York. This is his first Manhattan project. And so he really feels like, okay, now I'm on the same level playing field with the New York Five and all the other architects mm. in New York, and not just New York, but in Los Angeles, Chicago, in the world. In the summer of 1993, the high rise opens up. And again, it's following on the heels of 
the Gates of Grove, it immense critical acclaim. You know, he feels like he had really made it, not just professionally, but spiritually. He's really sort of done his thing. This is early summer, 1993, and then two months later, he disappears. We can get anything delivered from furniture to toilet paper. And now, adult beverages with Drizzly. Drizzly lets you compare prices from local liquor stores on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered right to your door in under 60 minutes. And right now, Drizzly's giving all new customers $5 off their first order. Just enter promo code EASY5 at checkout. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com. Support for Clever comes from Master and Dynamic. We know you love great design and care about quality audio. So we know you will love Master and Dynamic's headphones and earphones. Brilliant sound and design motivates everything they do. So Master and Dynamic products are the perfect gift for the music and design obsessed alike. And after you see the craftsmanship and premium materials, we know you'll want to get a pair for yourself too. Whether you're looking for luxurious and comfortable over-ear headphones, portable and power-packed true wireless earphones, or an immersive wireless speaker, Master and Dynamic has what you need to upgrade your listening experience. Hear your favorite podcast, clever, obviously, and your favorite songs in a whole new way. Visit masterdynamic.com and use the code CLEVER for 10% off your new pair of headphones. Terms and conditions apply. That's masterdynamic.com. So we're left with these questions of what happened to normal. What did happen to Norman? What's the evidence? What's the yeah. circumstances around his disappearance? In August of 1993, he would always go out for swims. Um, he lived in Bridgehampton at this point. That's where his office was. And he would always go to the beach every morning and he would go swimming. And that was his routine, his sort of communion with nature and he'd go swimming in the ocean. That was what he did. That morning, he went out, he parked his car at one of his clients' houses, and he walked down to the beach, he folded up his clothes, and he jumped into the ocean, and he never came back. His disappearance was discovered by the house cleaner of the client who had found that his car was blocking the driveway, and so she couldn't get out or she couldn't get in. So she went to see what was going on, see if she could find him swimming. He was nowhere to be found. His clothes are sitting there. She sounds the alarm. So this is really interesting because often uh, when people disappear, like really disappear, it's because there's the search starts too late. You know, maybe people don't start looking for the dis- the person who's disappeared for a day or something. So the ocean or the river or what have you has the opportunity to do its damage and take that person somewhere where they'll never be found. But they start doing a search for Norman within about three hours. And it's a, it's a big search. Everybody's there looking for Norman and they can't find him. And it's the most confusing thing because, again, everybody believes that Norman, has, he's, he's found himself. He's finally come into his own. He, both, again, spiritually and professionally, it seems like he's in a great place. Seems like his marriage is okay, but now he's gone. About six weeks later, uh, the, the investigator on the case ends up finding a hip bone, a human hip bone on a beach that's maybe a few miles away from the place where Norman went swimming. They decide not to do a DNA test on it, but they Mm -hmm. determine that it has to be Norman's hip bone. Who else's would it be? Plus it has some markings on it that they think match up to some surgery Norman had from a ski accident 10 years prior to that. So they determine, they say, well, we figured it out. It was an accidental drowning. And Norman, he washed up on the beach. He must have been eaten by sea life, sharks, whatever. And that's what happened. Case closed. Wait a second. 
First of all, does that happen in that area frequently enough for that to be a normal explanation? I think the thing that becomes the most confounding is that this hip bone is not found. He's not seen. He's just completely disappeared for six weeks. That is very unique. Often a body, when uh, someone drowns, they're filled with gases and they will surface to the top of the ocean. Mm -hmm. And this didn't happen. It didn't sit right with people. And so, what starts? Yeah, that's that was going to be my question. Is like when yeah. you were doing your research, what's the consensus? Like, was the public generally satisfied with that explanation, or were there no. whispers or some alternatives? Well, so lots of things start to emerge that raise these questions again, and I think a big part of it is that they declined to do a DNA test, even though DNA is pretty well established at this point. They declined to do a DNA test on this hip bone which is very curious and sort of leads all these questions. Yeah, so, because a DNA test would just lock it in, would just, right. would just seal the deal. It would still leave some questions. It would still leave some questions about whether could this have been suicide? Because a lot of what people talk about is Norman had this fascination with Corbusier, who died by drowning, and that Norman would make reference to to that, this very poetic way of just sort of disappearing into the beautiful ocean, the mystical ocean. And so if he was going to kill himself because his personal and professional life were not as rosy as they might have looked to some people, maybe this is a perfect way to do it. And maybe I'd be tempted to say it would be a half and half split that either people think that was his hip bone he drowned. We don't know whether it's an accident or whether it was suicide. But then I would say there's another 50% or maybe even more who think that maybe Norman disappeared himself, that he wanted to disappear, that this was restless Norman. He's always been restless. He was restless in Chicago. He's restless in Seattle, in Berkeley, in New York. He's he, he, he looking for himself constantly, constantly searching. And maybe he had achieved what he wanted to achieve. He had finally gotten critical acclaim. He finally was accepted by these people that he had struggled to be accepted by for years and always felt shunned. And finally, he had reached, as you said, the pinnacle of his career. And now he was done with that. So maybe Norman was over his existence in New York. He was ready for the next chapter of his life and he wanted to start clean. You know, yeah. maybe he engineered his disappearance and he snuck off to some other part of the world looking for more spiritual enlightenment or a new professional path. And that is throughout a lot of my interviews, the old timers in the Hamptons, many would sort of look wistfully and say, well, I like to believe that he's in Argentina or he's in Africa. And Norman just snuck away and just is off doing his Norman Joffe thing, but somewhere else. And we may never know. The building contains the space. If you burn the building down so that the building does not remain, the space it contained still exists. The light which defined the building still exists. When one realizes that the real power is the subtle presence of light and space, one's aesthetic preoccupations kind of uh, fall away. One starts getting loyal to light. And once one's loyal to light, one realizes that it's not the object itself, but the object's role in interrupting the light that is significant. So you spent a lot of time there meeting all of the people that are familiar with his legacy and work, and yeah. some of them are were alive and knew him personally. Yeah, absolutely. And if you are ever doing any research into um, Norman Joffe, you really can't escape Alistair Gordon, who is a writer and is probably the, the greatest documentarian of Norman Joffe's life and wrote kind of the quintessential book 
about Norman Joffe, romantic modernist, the life and work of Norman Joffe. Romantic modernist. Yes. And that's a great way. It's a great way to describe Joffe. But Alistair has done a lot of research and he went down the path of trying to find this hip bone and trying to see it and trying to get as close to this mystery as possible and ran into a lot of roadblocks in trying to do so. Do you think he'd be willing to talk to us? Because I feel like I would love to hear some of the sort of vivid details. Yeah, I think we have to talk to Alistair. Let's do it. Let's get him on the phone. My name is Alistair Gordon, and I am a full-time writer, author, and critic. One of the projects I did that was sort of long-term was I'd grown up in the Hamptons in the summers and was starting to kind of end of the heavy postmodern neo-traditional obsession with knocking down little cool beach houses from the 50s and building these, you know, monstrous McMansions. And my little battle that I did with the local real estate forces was just bringing to light that there were a lot of really important houses out there, especially on Eastern Long Island. You know, I mean, there were houses by Philip Johnson, Marcel Boyer, a guy named Andrew Geller, who I sort of helped to rediscover, Norman Jaffe, of course. Peter Blake was a big one. And they were really had been forgotten. And I'd grown up in a tiny beach house. So, you know, they really, I really responded to this kind of work emotionally. But it was also just saying, hey, you know, mid-century modernism, before that became a catchphrase, you know, it was really interesting. And I understood that late corporate modernism was sort of hideous and difficult to handle. But these things were really poetic, you know, very small in scale, very much about the environment and the views and much more in keeping with an environment like Eastern Long Island, which is low-lying dunes and wetlands and bays and ocean beaches and stuff. So... That's how it started. And Norman Jaffe was one of the architects that I really got interested in. Of course, he was still alive and still very much present. And we became kind of buddies. And we would, you know, he would show me his new projects, like the Gates of the Grove, which was the Jewish center of the Hamptons, and and new houses. And by that point, he was all, this is, you know, end of the 80s into early 90s. He was kind of an amazing guy for spiritual reasons too, not just as an architect. And so we would get together at the candy kitchen, you know, a little lunch place in Bridgehampton, have, you know, have French fries and grilled cheese sandwiches and talk about spiritual stuff. You know, we were both reading Mircea Eliada on the sacred in space, really arcane ideas about space. And he was obsessed with, the history of temples and uh, synagogues. And we had a lot of things in common that we talked about. How would you describe Norman personally? Well, he was, you know, shockingly handsome. I mean, he was sort of, you know, movie star, good looks. He was incredibly charming. Both women and men felt, kind of fell in love with him, you know, really had crushes on him. You know, you either loved him or you hated him. And there were some people I I interviewed who were, you know, still long after he died or disappeared, resented him and, you know, felt he was, I don't know, just angry. I never saw that side. To me, he was always charming, but I'm sure he could have been difficult in many ways as well. What kind of difficult? Well, he was eccentric, you know, so the people he who worked for him for a long time, who really loved him, I mean, really were devoted to him. They would say to me things like, oh, you mean difficult, like riding his bicycle in the middle of the night, in the middle of the Montauk Highway, you know, stuff like that. Or driving into New York City with a completely flat tire, you know, in the middle of a rainstorm. Or, you know, he wasn't a practical guy. And a lot of creative people obviously are like that. And usually you think architects are a little more of the real world, but I don't think I don't think Norman was. I think he was very much in the clouds. You know, he would do things like, which I always found fascinating, Unlike most architects, he loved to get his hands dirty and he'd go to a building site and, you know, get up on the roof and, and bang nails with the carpenter, and, you know, the, the roofer and, the, and push rocks around with the landscape guy, you know, doing because he wanted to, things to be right. But he also really believed in the craftsmanship of the worker, you know, who came in. Most subcontractors and contractors kind of hate architect, you know, the architects. And some of the builders I talked to, 
thought he was just wonderful and loved him. And they'd never worked with an architect like him, you know, because he treated them like an equal rather than sort of beneath content. Right. You know, like a lot of architects just hate builders. I talked to a lot of people who would say he was kind of famous for coming into a project after it was almost done and saying, oh, no, 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 that's all wrong. Right. Air down that. We got to start again. And that's what also really upset a lot of builders who were used to, you know, getting a set of plans, working drawings, and just doing them and, and finishing them. He would go to the building site, even when the house was almost finished, take Polaroids from different angles, and then just with a pen or, or pencil, draw over them and change things, you know, change the angle of the wall or the positioning of a room or the height of a ceiling. Most architects, once they submit the plans to the contractor, other than tiny details, right, it's done. Here it is. It's done. But for Norman, it was part of, you know, the, the larger creative process. It didn't end, you know, when you when you finish the drawings. You you know, he was very hands-on. I found that really fascinating. He started as an artist. He, you know, he shared a room with Klaus Oldenburg when he was in Chicago. And I think he never really stopped thinking of himself as an artist, you know, as a painter or sculptor rather than a, you know, businessman architect so, so much. It's costly to go in and, and change physical buildings after they've been built. And he was willing to absorb the cost of that. Yes. But it also meant that he was probably financially always on a little bit of unstable territory. Yeah, no, he was. And he didn't care about it. He really didn't care about that. Even when later in his career, when he really was very successful, I think he was happiest in a way when... You know, it was very simple, minimal lifestyle. And he was e either living in one of these tiny cottages he designed early on, or even, as I said, in, when he first started working in the Hamptons, he would drive out from Manhattan and sleep in his car, you know, and then walk on the beach in the morning. And uh, he would drive back and forth to New York, you know, in a rainstorm or whatever, and tape, he had a little cassette tape recorder, and he would sort of babble away into the tape recorder you know, different thoughts, sometimes very personal, spiritual things, sometimes just aggravation over a certain client or a certain building. He kept those. I don't even know what he was talking about. You know, it was sort of these just philosophical rambles about the sky and the earth, and somehow he's caught in between, and, you know, it's very personal. He rambles on and on about if a building is there and somehow the space is in the architectural work are destroyed by a fire, the building, the light, the shadows are still there. I, I never understood what he meant by that, but it was sort of compelling and very poetic. He was so different, and he was coming so much more out of Joe Escherich and the, you know, the Bay Area uh, modernists of San Francisco and Berkeley. Very different feeling, very different sense of material. Norman was always about textures and feeling and that's why I called it romantic modernist. You know, he was a modernist for sure, but he was very romantic in terms of his use of light, in terms of his use of color and material and texture. Do you think he perhaps was misunderstood or he also wasn't being perceived as credible? Well, in the sense of fitting into the New York Hamptons, you know, power axis, he definitely felt, I don't think he felt so much like a victim, but but I do think he felt like the outsider. I think that was a role he'd always played, you know, since a young man. Part of him wanted to be the superstar, you know, the famous handsome architect who, you know, is building skyscrapers in Manhattan and these sort of incredible, luxurious, you know, summer homes in the Hamptons. But another part of him was happy, as I said, sleeping in his car. And I think he liked the aesthetic side of life, you know, the, the less is more. And I think he was always in conflict with that. And near the end, I think he preferred those early houses that he'd done for people like Chico Hamilton, you know, the jazz musician and, and friends of his who were maybe in advertising or in, you know, they were like Harold Becker, who's a great film director, who had been, they'd been very close friends. And I was going to say, it sounds like those earlier commissions were more of a creative collaboration or kindred spirit kind of works, whereas these larger, more high-profile, more expensive ones were a little bit more status. It was totally status. You know, architects are, are sometimes seen as clinicians, you know, or scientists or something. And he was he was a warm, cozy, intense guy. And I think he could be intense, you know, in a dark way, but also in a very light way. And I think, again, people either loved him or hated him. 
I think Norman was very different, you know, that he, he sort of went back to the poetics of why he wanted to be an art, you know, an artist as an architect, not an architect as businessman or technical scientist, you know. And if you look at the best work, like the Pearlbinder House and the, the Gates of the Grove and work like that, it's really sensual. When he disappeared, what was your sense? I mean, obviously, there would be a lot of disbelief amongst people who knew him. But what was the general public reaction? Yeah, I mean, I think it ran the gamut. I, I, I think everybody was obviously shocked, as, as you are, if you know someone and they suddenly disappear. Yeah. And, the, you know, in my experience, when I grew up, on you know, body surfing all my life on Long Island. And it's, you know, it can be very uh, dangerous. It could be, unlike certain beaches, you know, it has a very steep cutoff. And you really go from quite shallow to suddenly like very deep, you know, and that's why they have, you know, they're famous great white sharks, you know, buzzing up and down the beach, especially around Montauk Point. I was not out there. I was at Princeton at the time. And I remember someone handed me the New York Times and they said, don't you know this guy? And I went, oh, my God. But, you know, it was shock and surprise mixed with not that surprise. I think almost everyone who knew him well. You know, it was the same thing. They were horrified, but but not at all surprised. You know that 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 something either he drowns accidentally, you know, and we can get into all the, the variations of that. So many people said to me when I started calling people up. In fact, every single person I called up or talked to the week after he disappeared uh, had a different story, had a different idea of what happened to him. If everyone that you talked to had a different idea about what happened, that means nobody was really satisfied until they found a bone and closed the case as a, as an accidental. Journey. Yeah, but but yeah, but that didn't even close the case. And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, just the character of the guy. You know, he was very uh, mercurial in many ways. He was he had these extremes. You know, one side being an ambitious New York architect, and the other side being you know, this meditating yogi sort of wannabe guru guy. And I think v very conflicted in some ways. So I think people projected their own fantasies in a way of this guy or their own memories or their own passions or, or dislike of this guy. And I think it took me a while to figure that out, but I think that's what was going on. So at the beginning, you had the logical thing, which is like, look, people every summer, a certain number of people drown in the ocean, on the ocean beach in, in eastern Long Island. That's just a given. But as all the old salts will tell you, the body always, some part of the body always washes ashore, and usually quite soon after the drowning, you know. So there was that. And then there was like, well, you know, there have been a lot of big sharks around recently. So then the theory was he got eaten by a great white, and then, you know, that bit of his hip bone was left, and Somehow that washed up near Montauk, and you know I never quite totally bought that. And no one I know has ever seen that bone, you know. And I know people have tried to see that bone. I have never met anyone, including the detective who did the case, who claims that they saw and held and looked at at the bone. Now I don't know if it it's because it disappeared into you know Riverhead or Hopog, you know Suffolk County forensic whatever you know storage unit. I have no idea. It was just kind of fishy. Let's start at the beginning. He was depressed. He went swimming too far, too far out. It, we know it was a pretty calm day. You know, there weren't any massive undertow or big waves or anything. So, but then you have at least, I have to say, at least four or five people I talked to who all claimed to have taught Norman how to swim, that he was a lousy swimmer, that he, you know, hadn't grown up knowing how to swim. So, you know, often, that's quite difficult if you have to learn later in life. You know, you're never a great swimmer. I don't know. So that was weird. Did you just go out and have a heart attack or a stroke and then a shark eats him or the bluefish eat him? Or, you know, that, there was a theory that the bluefish, you know, were really running strong that time of year and they just gobbled him up, which I don't believe. I don't believe bluefish eat human bodies. I just think what's fascinating to me as a writer, as a cultural historian, whatever, is that. A guy like this should, I mean, if you or I suddenly disappeared tomorrow, would all our friends speculate so wildly? You know, it, I think it had a lot to do with the nature of his personality. Whoever you asked had a different, a different idea of what happened. So people saw his car parked in the driveway and his clothes on the beach. And because right. it was part of his regular practice to go swimming every day, that was the assumption. But we don't actually have eyewitness testimony that, that anybody saw him actually get into the water. 
Not that I know of. So there are a number of different things that make drowning a real possibility, including he was a lousy swimmer. There Mm -hmm. were sharks in the area. You yourself said it's kind of a dangerous place, although the water was calm that day. It can, it can be dangerous. It can, on a given day, it can be quite dangerous, yeah. But in your heart of hearts, do you feel like drowning or some sort of attack from a sea animal satisfactory? No. I, I would say that the amount of time I've spent thinking about it and, like Andrew, sort of pondering and studying, you know, what there is to study, one half of me believes everything, you know, everything I hear or read, and the other half of me just doesn't believe anything, any of it. And, you know, maybe he just, went out and had a heart attack or got exhausted, swam, because he did something strange, which I forgot to mention earlier on. He would apparently just swim straight out. You know, like He wouldn't go along the shore. He'd just swim straight out like he was going to Portugal or something. A couple of times at these funny lunches we'd have, he'd say, um, it wasn't Le Corbusier's death very elegant. I went, what the hell are you talking about? Because as you probably know, you know, Le Corbusier, the great, you know, Swiss, French, whatever, architect, he died swimming off of Cap Martin in the south of France. Now we pretty much know, because of the, the latest biography, which came out a couple of years ago, they'd fa- found this, th- these letters. And it sounded like, you know, his wife had died, his mother had just died, he was depressed. And, you know, you could, you just go, I'm going to swim so far out into the current that I'm going to be too tired to come back. And that's sort of a passive form of suicide, right? Uh, th- to me, that's that's plausible, but it still doesn't answer the question of, you know, why no body? You know, why, why did the body not? Especially if it was not too rough. And eventually the, the current does come in. It, it sounds like he glamorized Le Corbusier's end in a certain way, or he found it poetic. And do you think that there's some merit to that as a theory again i don't i don't know it's just it adds fuel to the flames of you know speculation which is kind of fascinating because i remember when he said that i i really do distinctly remember him saying that to me and at the time i thought what that what is he talking about you know what why is that he seemed to see it as his la- his final design option you know that this guy was who designed his way through life in so many ways had this elegant you know beautifully poetical way of of checking out when he decided to check out did he Uh, ever mention any other suicide adjacent type of comments i mean not a specific reference various people said to me over the years yeah you know that he definitely had a, a depressive side and as i say he had he may have had a you know, even a genetic history of that with his mother. And I think his brothers had, you know, had problems too. So yeah, I think that's there as, as uh, again, you know, as this many different possibilities. And I think that's one of them. That's what happens when you leave without saying goodbye properly. You know, you just, you disappear and everybody makes up a, a story. This leads me to the, you know, theory that I heard the, the most was this idea that he disappeared himself, that this was a plan by Norman and that he could still be alive. Oh, absolutely. I would say that was, in my experience, that was much more the response than he got murdered was, you know, he just checked out and he was sick of the whole thing and he faked his death and got the hell out of here and is either in, you know, he's very involved in this uh, program in Africa that looked after orphan kids from Nairobi. And um, a, a bunch of people said to me, oh, yeah, I think he just went there. And then others said, you know, he'd been at the with the guru in uh in northern india like he went to india because he'd raised money to build a hospital for him you know he just went off and he got sick of the whole thing and he checked out his marriage was sort of you know on the rocks and he got out of there and i think 1993 you maybe could still consider doing that you know it was now with facial recognition and everything digital and everything you know they know where you are every set and cell phones and everything you know you couldn't do you couldn't get as far as kennedy airport to do that why are so many people thinking that a guy would go to that extent i mean that's that's a pretty intense act to to take right is to choreograph your end but again you know we go back to what he said about le corbusier well, what, what what I loved was that they all really hoped that that is what happened. Sure. They, sure. There was, there was again, he, he, this was a guy who uh, touched people deeply. You know, if you bet him, you were touched by him, I think. 
So, but isn't that just projecting their their desire for the resurrection of the of the prophet? Kind of, you know, that yeah. if someone dis, if someone disappears like that, you can, of course, you can imagine it's a way of non closure. It's a way of keeping the possibility of someone's life. I often, you know, in the middle of the night when I'm thinking about this stuff, or you know, I have I often have a dream about him. I see Norman, he comes out of the ocean and I'm really rattled and I go, you know, Norman, where have you been? And, you know, you know why, don't you, why don't you get in touch with your family? And um, he hands me, he doesn't speak to me, he just hands me this book, this big book, like a Bible, you know, or something, a big black book. And it's, and I, and I take it like I need to read this book, you know, that Norman's handing me in the dream, but it's wrapped up really tightly with duct tape, you know, that, that thick, gray tape that plumbers use, I guess, or whatever, and it's really impossible to get off. And of course, I, I can't open it to read it. So that, at that point, I usually wake up. And I always wake up curious, thinking, you know, what am I supposed to do next? You know, I've done a show and a book and a movie, you know, and, and you know, what more do you want? Leave me alone. You know, what, you know, what, what are you trying to tell me? And what's in the book? But just let me open the damn book. Whoa. Okay, so let's break that down a bit. That yeah. was a lot of great detail from yes. Alistair. I still don't feel like we have any real answers. The armchair detective in me wants to really try and figure this out. So, like, yep. he's a shitty swimmer, but the yeah. ocean wasn't rough. And he and he had been swimming there for years and years and years. He knew it. It wasn't a new place for him. Some people are willing to accept it, like, oh, I guess that that's what happened, you know, that's right. the way the cookie crumbles. But right. there are a lot of people who are just like, no, that doesn't sound right. We would have found his body or mm-hmm. there would have been some other indication, like maybe if the if the water was particularly treacherous that right. day or if there was shark sightings or something, then we'd have a little right. bit more to go on. They didn't find right. any body and they didn't no find body. that hip, hip bone for six weeks. And And just the hip bone. That's what's really curious as well. Not not one other piece of this. Why the hip bone? I mean, I don't know enough about how bodies decompose in the water or how they get eaten by sea life. <laughs> but let's <You> don't? <laughs> but let's just imagine he drowned and was in some way sort of decomposed and dismembered by the various natural forces of the sea. And all that's left or all that washes up to shore is a hip bone. Why not conduct a DNA test just to make sure? Were they super expensive or? It was relatively new technology then. But I think by by 1989, I think it was pretty commonplace to conduct them. And I think especially for someone of his stature. And again, he's in the Hamptons, which is not a poor community, you know, by any stretch of the imagination. So you would think if a prominent figure of uh, their community goes missing and then supposedly turns up or a piece of him turns up, they would want some real closure there. Yeah, especially because, I mean, there was a lot of speculation and press around his disappearance, right? And a lot of people were still hoping to find him alive. Right, absolutely. I mean, yeah, this was not a small thing. The New York Magazine did, did a massive article on it, like about 10 pages. The New York Post, when he disappeared, the New York Times. I mean, it was it was everywhere. It was a big deal. So, yeah, it was very curious. And I think that really that prompted a lot of speculation, a lot of the speculation of, of what could have gone on and these more sort of sorted possibilities were prompted by this fact that, that it just did not feel very closed, that a DNA test could have at least narrowed it down to, okay, is him, Norman Jaffe, disappeared in the Atlantic Ocean when he was swimming? Sure, we don't know if it was intentional or it was accidental, but at least we know it's him. But then that door is left open. Why is that door left open? You have to ask yourself that. Right. Well, let's break down the idea of a, a, an intentional drowning. Like We know that he had a troubled connection to his parents if his dad's a drifter and his mom is bipolar and you know he even sought his own emancipation from them his ex-wife died of a terrible car crash and he became a single father his life is not without some turbulence but he seemed to be on his spiritual path he seemed to be finding what he was looking for 
I guess well, there I, is always a, an enormous disappointment if you seek and seek and seek, and you think you find it, and it's wholly disappointing. That can be very devastating. But it didn't right. sound like he was having, I mean, he he was getting the critical acclaim. Well, was he happy in his marriage? We don't know that. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's pretty well documented that there was some turbulence there, that it was not all's well. That definitely plays into, again, uh, this theory of that could have caused him to consider suicide. That could have. Like, a role. were there rumors that she was going to leave him, or did they have money trouble, or... The other thing that I think is pretty interesting about the suicide idea, which plays into the disappeared idea, I think it could be the same thing. I could imagine Norman saying, you know, I've reached the pinnacle. I've sort of done it all here on Earth now. Now, the next adventure, and the next adventure doesn't have me in a human body it's mm-hmm. my soul i need i need to free my soul and i'm going to do that sort of spiritual evolution to a higher plane in your research did people talk about that as well is that something yeah. it seems like his wife might be privy to that if if he R- talked about things like that yeah yeah she talks about that morning that he died these uh certain kind of birds that showed up in their yard that had never showed up there before. And I think they weren't even really from the area, um, if I'm getting the story correct. And she was convinced that it was sort of Norman, you know, stopping to say, I'm okay. I've completed yeah. the journey in my body, and now I'm in this other place, and I just want you to know that I'm okay. Maybe he felt like he had completed his soul contract, and it was mm-hmm. time for him to move on. And right. since he is an architect, he architected his own moving on. Now, apparently Norman had a, a fairly sizable life insurance policy. His wife is not able to lay claim to that insurance policy unless there is a body. So there starts to be rumors that she was friendly in one way or another with the investigators on uh, on this case and uh, one investigator in particular and that he produced this hip bone and it could go either way it could be norman even working it out if norman norman was like listen working out with the investigator i'm gonna do this but i need you to produce some form of my body so sarah and the kids are taken care of like i'm going to disappear but I need you to produce this hip bone and therefore the insurance policy can be claimed. Okay. Wait a minute. This is getting, (laughs) okay. All right. All right. So there's an insurance policy that his wife cannot benefit from unless there is a body, whether he intended to transform himself to a higher spiritual plane on purpose, or whether he intended to create a, a ruse of a drowning so that he could disappear and go live a life somewhere else. He was right. thoughtful enough to set a plan in place to have a hip bone that looked like his be discovered so that yes. his family would still be taken care of. So do we have any eyewitnesses that saw him park his car, get out, no. go down no. to the beach, take off his clothes? We don't. We, we just have, no have I- the pile of clothes and the car in the driveway. Yes, exactly. Theoretically, that could have been driven by somebody else, some sort of perpetrator. Right, sure. Placed the clothes, and then there's no body at all because he's murdered and buried somewhere else. And there's only one hip bone that's been extracted from his body. Or it's just some other hip bone. Or some other hip bone. Yeah, that taken from a graveyard or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And the only, like, sort of people that we could think of that would want him dead are sorted business dealings. Yeah, business dealings. But again, double-crossed somebody somewhere. Right. Well, you know, and and what he was really known for was, again, these eccentricities that came out in all sorts of crazy ways. Even in most benign example is that Norman really did want to either transcend this plane or move somewhere else, you Mm -hmm. know, and be free to start a new chapter. And he was beloved and friendly enough 
with the people around there that they sort of agreed to assist. Exactly. So that's kind of where we're left. And it feels like this, this mystery that sort of will never go away until that hip bone comes back and we're able to do some type of DNA test on it. And again, that won't close the case entirely, but I think that would narrow the mystery down. But without that, we're left, we're left swimming in these waters, so to speak. Norman, where are you? Send us a message, a sign. Thanks for joining us on this inaugural episode of Clever Confidential. Huge thanks to Alistair Gordon for sharing his expertise and personal experiences. If you liked this episode and want to hear more stories like this, including the bizarre tale of Frank Lloyd Wright and the axe murders that took place at Taliesin, let us know. You can find us on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcast. And you can find me at Amy Devers. And you can find me, Andrew Wagner, at Wags is Sticks. Clip of Norman Joffe's voice appears courtesy of Alistair Gordon and Floating Films. Clever Confidential is produced by 2VDE Media with editing by Rich Straffolino. Our theme music is Astronomy by Thin White Rope from the album In a Spanish Cave, courtesy of Frontier Records. Hi, I'm Neil Innes. And I'm Andres Bartos from Passport. Each week, we travel to a new place to tell you enlightening, smart, and just plain incredible stories which have shaped our destination. We want you to experience the world with us. And so does this week's sponsor, Booking.com. And the best news is they're about to have the biggest sale of the year where you can save 30% or more. This is a limited offer, so make sure you book before the 1st of December 2020 to travel anytime before the end of 2021. Find amazing deals now at booking.com forward slash Black Friday to come and travel with us.